Welcome to a special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. We're approaching Christmas. We need to get some books on your Christmas gift list, don't we? So this time, three authors with new books, and they join us to give their takes on broadcasting's backstory. Uh, We were going to do six authors, but that turned out to be quite a lot. So I think we'll do three this time, maybe three next time. Uh, This time, it's a tale of radiophilia, that's the love of radio, references to radio in popular culture, from novels to uh, pop songs to Bob the Builder even, and Across the Pond, America's early days of public broadcasting. That's something that I don't know nearly enough about, but I'm looking to find out more. This time from doctors Carolyn Birdsall, the Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Amsterdam. Josh Shepard is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Martin Cooper is the Assistant Subject Leader Emeritus in the Department of Journalism and Media at the University of Huddersfield. Three fine doctors with three fine works that you, yes you, could put on your academic reading Christmas list. This time our authors are three academics and on the next episode I think three practitioners. We'll be discovering more next time about Doctor Who, the Sunday programme and pop music from people who make them. But shall we meet this episode's guests? Yes indeed, welcome to an author special of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London College. Hello, hello. Welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Paul Carenza here. So three authors this time and another three next time, I think. Our standard podcast will resume again in the new year when we dive back into 1923, the tale of the closure of Magnet House, the opening of Savoy Hill and the launch of a new era of British broadcasting. All that to come, but to get us there, I thought I'd bring you some specials between now and then. So for Christmas, we're going to have the first religious broadcast. I've been performing that recently on tour. I recorded it in the actual church where that first religious broadcast in Britain happened and we recorded it. We'll bring it to you for our Christmas special. And by the way, I will be on tour early next year. paulcarenza.com slash tour for details of that. But anyway, to this time. And our three fantastic authors, Drs. Carolyn Birdsell, Martin Cooper and Josh Shepard. I thought it'd be quite nice to take a chronological approach. So we'll dart back and forth between them as they bring us through the early part of the 20th century in terms of broadcasting, both in Britain and in the US. But first of all, should we have, I don't know, statements of intent? That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? So here with their mission statements of exactly what their books contain, do buy them. Let's hear from our three wise academics. Now, of course, I approach this as a non-academic. So if they start getting too clever, I'll ask them to put it in layman's terms so people like me can understand. So let's head to university and see what our academic writers have in store. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now the author of the new book, Radiophilia and Associate Professor of Media Studies at University of Amsterdam, Dr. Carolyn Birdsell. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. And well done on the new book. Uh, it's, how's it been going for you? And when did this start? I guess my my main idea with the Radiophilia book was that I'd realised that when people study the history of radio and, and also the, the 100 years of radio that was uh, in the air uh, in the last few years, that there's a tendency to focus a lot on institutions and on the production side of things. But so often the experience of the listeners is left out and especially questions of emotions and and the emotional engagement with radio over 100 years seem to be a missing story. So my idea with the concept of radiophilia that I try to introduce in the book is that we need something to make sense of yeah, the, the development of a love for radio or an attachment to radio, what people bring 
to to the medium over 100 years, but also the kinds of attractions of radio. So what are what are the qualities of radio of that period? What attracts people uh, to enjoying the experience of listening to radio in all its forms? Yes, it's a very relatable idea, isn't it? Because we anyone who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure, loves radio and has grown up loving it and probably has those key moments they remember of listening to a certain radio show or getting your first own radio, whatever it might be. Charting the history of that is it's always been there from the start, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have super fans, people who have maybe been very involved with particular programs, uh, stars, stations. We might also have fluctuations. It could be that someone is not that into radio, but it still appeals to them in a given moment. They might hear some music from a car radio going past and and it moves them for a moment. They enjoy it. They might go into a shop and hear radio in the shop and it still involves them. They still enjoy it. So I tried to think also about radiophilia, the love of radio is something that could be fleeting, a few moments of music, but it could be actually a lifelong passion as well. Author of Radio's Legacy in Popular Culture, Martin Cooper. I've always been enthusiastic about radio. I, I grew up with it. We had a valve radio set that uh, was a wedding present to my parents, and it sat there in the corner of the living room. And I used to cruise up and down the shortwave and the medium wave, and I just used to love listening to those strange voices that were coming out of the valve radio set. But what struck me about this book was I, I wanted to, to try and write something, an academic work. I mean, it's 250 pages long. Um, and so on, but something that's accessible. And what struck me was um, the number of songs that mention the radio. We can start with Buggles' Video Killed the Radio Star. Then there's Radio Gaga by Queen. It goes on and on. I mean, I collected, well, all all told, I've got about 300 examples in the book, not only pop songs, but but novels, movies, um, works of art. I've put them mm. all in there. And mm. the idea is that I've tried to tell the story of 100 years of radio using these um, things that other people have have made inspired by the radio. Some lovely early examples. In fact, what's nice, we've had a couple of people send us early examples. Like we had, there's a wireless station down in my heart. And you've mentioned something I've never heard of, like Rudyard Kipling's 1902 story, Wireless, which is, of course, telegraphy rather than telephony. I think they talk about, I just want to, I just want to be alive long enough to experience yeah. this and all this sort of hope for the future. But then those rather negative ones, wasn't it? Rather people going, oh, I'm not too sure about this. So Martin Cooper grounding us then in the early 20th century with bizarre tales from, yeah, Rudyard Kipling. We'll hear more from Martin shortly and Carolyn Birdsell. But as we take our chronological tale, let's move forward, but across the pond. You see, America is commonly known as being the birthplace of proper radio broadcasting, the first to get it going. But according to our next guest, it actually started earlier than I thought. Delighted to welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast for one week only. We go American broadcasting and not just British broadcasting. Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, he's the Director of the Library and Congress Preservation Task Force, Josh Shepard. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Thank you for having me. This marvellous new book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. And when I saw that title and I thought, public broadcasting, we we need to know more about public broadcasting in America. All we've talked about America so far is they beat us to it, essentially, KDKA in Pittsburgh. But does it, it starts before then, presumably. Yeah. So uh, American public media uh, it is demarcated uh, more by its uh, engineering and physics department's experiments with radio waves in the 19 aughts and 19 teens. So, you know, if you really want to like 
pick a first broadcasting day, and this is pretty highly contested in the U.S., well, the KDKA argument is 1920. Uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, 9XM, and then later WHA, uh, traces their first broadcasting, so the one-to-many model in the U.S. to 1917. And so how did that work? So they had a guy named Earl Terry, and Earl Terry was a physics professor who was interested in just radio waves per se, and he was an experimental physicist. So he actually went about building early radio studios from scratch, and he would blow his own um, uh, vacuum tubes, and he would handle the mercury <laughs> for the Leyden jars, wow. and he would uh, actually just construct the apparatus of sending radio waves repeatedly um, with just a few students uh, in the 19-teens. We had World War One, and they go to him and his students, and he has two major students, Carl Jansky and Malcolm Hansen, and they say, well, we need someone to test a one-to-many model for military broadcasting. And there's a place called the Great Lakes Naval Base, which is on Lake Michigan in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, north of Milwaukee, uh, which is about, I don't know, it's got to be about 100 miles away from Madison. And so they start to experiment in 1917, and it's actually pretty successful and becomes an early tool of the military. And then around that time, they realize that they can also uh, begin to model this distance, the transgression of distance in rural America to do things like farm reports. They could just go on there and read what the prices of pork stocks are, you know, or something like that. And uh, tornadoes. So there's a lot of tornadoes in Wisconsin, <laughs> different okay. other parts of the U.S. So they could do weather reports. So these early weather reports and just uh, stock quotes are being listed Um you know, at random times per day. They were very disorganized about it in the early days between 1917, 1920. And at that time, uh, the government had declared a moratorium on radio use uh, because of military reasons. And that was the only functional station basically in the country uh, for uh, about two or three years. The moratorium because of military use, that's the same as Britain as well. So bits of this story are going, oh, that sounds familiar because we had the same, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years after or whatever it might be. But that idea of we try a thing, the government say no, um, and we go, oh, but it's useful, you know, stock reports and weather reports and stuff, public service, etc. Government mm -hmm. convincing, but similar issues both sides of the Atlantic. So, uh, you know, with the educational model in the US by about 1920, 21, they realized that it has this public service potential uh, as an extension service of the university. And in the US, uh, they started something called adult education and distance learning models uh, for rural audiences. And that usually meant like 16 year olds who were working on farms and only had to go to grade school. Uh, the compulsory education model was only until the early teens at that time. And they realized that they could actually reach uh, these audiences to get more education and more training through distance learning with immediacy, you know, with radio. And that's the origins of the American genres of like what they would call uh, home economics at the time, which is, you know, becomes cooking shows, music appreciation, and the really early educational uh, broadcasting models, which precede a lot of commercial broadcasting models, 
just have to do with these extension services of universities in the form of instruction and announcements. So there's very little aesthetic progress at that point. And honestly, it's not very good <laughs> as a model until the 1950s. I mean, it takes a really long time for them to experiment their way into what we would call educational entertainment. Thank you, Josh Shepard. More from him shortly. So we're going to delve forward then through the century of broadcasting. And that means in Britain, we get the radio amateur age. When official broadcasting was banned, it was up to the radio hams to get things going. Author of the book Radiophilia, Carolyn Birdsell. The word amateur means the one who loves. So already there in the word amateur, we, we have this idea of love, affection, uh, engagement with radio. And uh, absolutely, I think... Uh, we often think of radio culture as starting with broadcasting. We sort of have a tendency to bracket out the amateurs as somehow being, yeah, the ones who dabbled at the beginning, but, you know, not to really fold them into our understandings of radio culture. But, you know, they were really essential. They they pioneered the idea of listening to the world across borders. They had forms of interaction with these QSL postcards that they sent out. And then when they got uh, responses, they got responses from all over the world. They had logbooks, they had scrapbooks. Having had these experiences that they found thrilling and engaging, but also trying to hold on to aspects of that by writing things down on paper or, or keeping yeah, postcards and other ephemera. So they, they're actually our first radio archivists in a way. And especially in that era where we haven't really got recordings uh, until the early 30s. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, those people listening to it, they're, they're the fans, they're the ones we thank for that. Initially, 1922, you know, when the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, first started, there, there was a great enthusiasm for this thing called radio. And people really wanted to know what it was because, you know, they'd never heard voices coming out of literally out of the air. I mean, initially, people thought this was sort of strange spirits and things like that. They were, they were inventing all sorts of um, stories surrounding this. The other one I was fascinated by was uh, William, I can't pronounce his name, William Lecure, William Lecure, Lecure, oh, Lecure. Yes. Uh, I'm yeah, partly fascinated yeah. by him because he's he, he's from Guildford, which is where I am as well. Yeah. And uh, he was a novelist and interested in radio. And I'm, a you know, doing that as well. And um, and you mentioned there are a couple of his books that I think were sort of thrillers, weren't they? But using wireless is this. That's you know, right. Yeah. I mean, he was um, he was the Mickey Spillane of his day. But the books that he wrote were um, to be perfectly honest with you, are not the best reading a hundred years on. Um, but they were ones that were, each chapter appeared in a magazine every week, every month. So they, they were like Dickens, if you like, they were um, part works that, that built up over time. And, you know, he had these these heroes who not only worked in Chelmsford, but also caught criminals and things like that. You know, do engineers do that in their spare time? I don't know. But he was ruggedly handsome, this hero. And he went chasing after the, these criminals across Europe. Even I think in one of his books, he goes to Switzerland and, and finds this person and brings them back to justice. But, you know, of their time, they're really rather good. And they mention things in passing like, oh, tonight we're going to tune into Hilversum to listen to the classical concert this is um you know 1921 1922 literally months before the bbc the company starts official broadcasting let's dive back across the atlantic then and hear from josh shepherd i'm reading about early broadcasting history from the british perspective and am i seeing a slightly 
a one-sided view then when I see the BBC saying, in America, it's like 1922, there's chaos, chaos in the ether. The chaos, which today is so obvious in America, where it can be avoided here. It's, it's, it's commercial advertising everywhere. Everyone's just got a slightly more powerful transmitter than the next town to plug their car and shampoo. And how, how wrong are they? Yeah, p- part of the early uh, model for all uh, point-to-point communication before broadcasting, of course, was this chaos of the ether in which you have multiple peoples per channel and it's completely unregulated. Uh, by the time you move to the broadcasting model, the advertisers figure out a way to make it profitable pretty quickly uh, by 19... 19- 24 or so in the U.S., uh, you're looking at the auspice of early regional broadcasting and NBC broadcasting, pulling from performing talent supported through advertising similar to magazines. So a model would have been like Reader's Digest, in which you had a page and then there's like an article, but then there's a little advertisement on the side that you're getting almost simultaneously. A lot of the American approach to non-commercial media or public media is an aspirational history until the late 1960s. You're looking at 40 years of advocacy just to expand educational access through technology. But not all young people want to be educated. Some are hooked on radio, but too much. Here's Carolyn Birdsall. I think that's something that I did look into is this figure of the obsessed radio listener. So we think of loving radio, especially those like yourself and I who who perhaps uh, appreciate radio. Um, You know, we think of you know, fandom or an obsession as being a good thing, but actually there were a lot of anxieties in early the early radio uh, period about obsessed radio listeners or that they might um, even become radio crazy, that they might get a wireless scientist or uh, have some kind of radio madness. And I'm, I'm quoting kind of the discourse at the time, and that goes for the UK as well as other countries. I think in the case of the amateurs, the the fear was that they would become disconnected from their home environment, that they'd be up in the attic or in the shed or at a radio clubhouse, you know, tuning into the sounds of the world, but not really engaging socially in their environment. And what we see is actually the, the 1920s kick in with established regulated radio is that that anxiety about people becoming obsessed with radio listening shifts from the amateurs to actually to women and uh, women in the home and young female listeners that they might become unnecessarily um, nervous or uh, unstable as a result of their obsessive radio listening. The way the very early days you've got this whole thing, oh, it's it's a young man's thing, it's a boy's thing, playing with wireless, playing with these things. And then it becomes almost like a domestic appliance, almost in a way, like I know the Daily Mail Ideal Home Exhibition in the early 20s was promoting radio as a, a thing for the home. And and then when women's programming comes in, you do get a sense then of, of daytime listening rather than just evening concerts and mm. talks and things. And, and those anxieties, I suppose, as you just said there. Yeah, I think it's something that, that they've called in the history of technology, the domestication of technology. So when a, when a technology or media technology is new, um, because its uses, its applications, its functions are still being established, there's a lot of uh, anxiety expressed in the culture at large, also among politicians about, you know, what's going to happen when it's put into use. And interestingly, people who study this period uh, and look at it in comparison with other technologies see that it's actually quite similar to when the telephone was introduced or television, the internet. But this same fear about um, the private versus the public or 
you know, the, the sanctity of the home, that that really gets triggered. And I think we can actually remember that similar things happened. Uh, we've heard about it for the Walkman in, in later decades, but also the iPod and the iPhone. When they were first introduced, there were a lot of anxieties in UK media, for instance, about um, distracted teenagers consuming iPods, about fears about crime around uh, you know, these expensive devices. And even if it's not one-to-one -one with early radio, we can see similar patterns about distracted listeners, um, yeah, so, social, socially appropriate behaviors, um, fears of crime, abnormal behavior. And yeah, elsewhere in the study of these kinds of trends, it's been called technopathology. So this longer history from the telegraph to the present where we, we get really worried about whether people are becoming unwell. So we both see technologies as, as a, a symptom as well as a cure uh, in how we respond to them. Into the 1930s. Do you remember Professor Brainstorm? It was a children's mm. um, children's story that was done by Norman Hunter. Originally, these were short stories read by Norman Hunter on the BBC on Children's Hour. Now, in 1930, 31, he did a story called The Professor Does a Broadcast. Brilliant concept because it all goes completely wrong. So he gets the timings wrong. Um, there's an announcer pacing up and down the, the corridors outside giving time checks to himself. Now, we never do that in real life, but you know, it, it sort of it brought home to children the crazy world of radio where we're, we're sort of obsessed with the second hand. Um, but yet there was criticism, and in the in the nineteen thirties, certainly as the the European competition set up, Luxembourg Radio, Paris Radio, Normandy, and so on, um, there was a, a, a small cottage industry, if you like, of black and white movies made in Britain that poked fun at the BBC. There's one which is called Radio Parade of nineteen thirty six. It was actually released in December 1935, but it had Will Hay and he was paying a director general of a national broadcasting company, um, NBG, it was called. And if you think of those letters, it's no be good. So there was a kind of, you know, an innuendo in there. But uh, he played this sociopath who was the director general of this radio national radio company who turned up at half past seven in the morning by chauffeur, went in the back entrance of Broadcasting House, and then spent most of the day doing Hitler impersonations in front of the mirror in his personal washroom. Right. And th th this was pointed criticism of the BBC. Well, actually, I remember we, we we stumbled on a bit of Will Hay. I think in in early 1922, there was a a, right. a, a review he did on stage, tuning in or something like that. Which that's he... right. He played Professor Wireless. That's the one. Who, yeah. uh, and it was a running, it was um, a musical review. But his running gag was that he could never get his wireless tuned in properly. So in between the acts, the songs, the dance, the magicians and so on and so forth, it used to keep popping up on stage. I still can't tune me wireless. <laughs> and that was the running yeah. gag, you know, yeah. that this technology was, was failing. These processes of learning to love radio through different, types of early radio culture so that could be the radio film that promotes radio or the very famous radio exhibitions where flocks of people came to see the latest devices and and play with them themselves or even kind of more formal aspects of uh, of uh, knowledge which could be an encyclopedia or a a magazine sharing certain types of information and here i'm just really interested in this 
different aspects of learning, which become tied up with this aspect of loving the medium. Yeah, so the educators really believe in public educational access. Let's dive back across the Atlantic and hear from Josh Shepard, especially with regards to education. We often think of inform, educate, entertain as being Reithian principles, but he, he takes that from the US as well, doesn't he? Uh, the way to think about radio in the early American educational context, there's this strong concept that there should be equal access to education. It should be nonprofit, similar to schools, that all schools should be free, like public schools. And then, um, you know, uh, it, it really gets shut down in the U.S. context. And there's a, a famous book by a guy named Robert McChesney, who uh, details how what we call the Communications Act of 1934 essentially privatizes American media because of the relative success and stable technical infrastructure uh, with the commercial broadcasters and then the relative um, uh, autonomy, but incoherence of the educators. By 1935, uh, over 70% of educational broadcasters lose their license. And it begins to, the nonprofit mode of communication disappears for about a year or two in the U.S., except at a few Midwestern schools. And so that would be like Wisconsin or Ohio and Illinois and places like that. So, you know, by the 1930s, what happens with the American um, nonprofit system and proto-public system is they become very immersed in exploring how do you maintain a concept or a vision for non-commercial, non-profit media? So they have no income and they have very little support from universities and they're losing early philanthropic support, which as, as you all know, uh, is sort of the groundwork for still uh, for funding of public media in the US. It's largely philanthropic funded beyond uh, the basic federal grant to uh, the corporation for public broadcasting. And so uh, they end up just exploring shortwave relay uh, broadcasts, uh, what they called program transcriptions. So the pressing of records and then distributing that. And there is this rule with the Communications Act uh, that there had to be a certain number of hours filled per day or competing you know, interests could get the license. So they really start to turn towards playing records from more successful stations, which was Wisconsin and Ohio State primarily. Uh, to uh, fill the hours of the day, and it begins to take the auspice of something like a network, or we call it a fourth network, because there's CBS, NBC, and ABC for a lot of years. So, um, you know, the centralization and formularization of a sound of public media emerges by the 1940s. James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake. If you can read it, and, and it is a challenge, a lot of James Joyce's work for many reasons is a challenge to read, but there's a lot of radio references, particularly to interference. Um, there's one where there's a, a weather forecast, a shipping forecast that is half heard and it kind of slips away. But Joyce has actually written this down. And bear in mind that Joyce was writing this in the early 1930s when he was living in Paris and he was trying to pick up Radio Athlone or, or anything in English. Uh, or, well, I, Joyce was multilingual, but he was trying to pick up radio and, and failing. On this episode, Josh Shepard is telling us about the role of education in public broadcasting in the United States. Oh, yes, we've dwelt in Britain for too long on this podcast. Well, it is in the title. There's a name you mentioned in the 1930s, Charles Saitman, who is a name I've seen in a lot of these books because he's a BBC guy and he works under one of my favourite characters from the early days, Hilda Matheson. What's the link of people like that at the BBC then with what goes on in the US? Yeah, Charles Seaman turns out to be maybe one of the three or four most important early figures of American 
public media or proto-public media. He uh, is brought over on a Rockefeller grant as the Office of Education and Early Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, are trying to figure out what to do after the licenses are lost. And uh, Rockefeller had sent Edward R. Murrow, a young Edward R. Murrow, uh, to the BBC to learn just how to speak to audiences. The BBC had uh, been held up as, as the model for that. And uh, they discover Charles Seatman, who apparently had a bad relationship with Charles uh, with a uh, John Reith, <laughs> and uh, and they bring him back uh, to do a certain amount of just consultation, just to get out of Reith's hair for a while. And he ends up staying in the U.S. Uh, pretty much for the rest of his life as a professional. Uh, but in the 30s, his first project is in 1936. They send him to all of these fledgling educational stations around the country. And they have him evaluate and offer suggestions on behalf of the Rockefeller Foundation for how educational broadcasting can get better. And there's this just amazing, I opened the book with this, there's this amazing report that he writes. And he just writes these cutting critiques, not only of the station practices and their incapacity to understand even how far away to talk from the microphone, and just simple <laughs> stuff like that. But the but the, like the rural life, like he's very turned off by just the people <laughs> in these small little towns, these little university towns. And he um, just kind of goes at them for pages and pages and pages. And eventually uh, Rockefeller actually cuts the funding of early educational experimentation at the station level and begins to develop best practice models at a national level. But here's the thing about uh, Seatman is that even though he... Uh, does everything from insult people's smell to their weight in the report <laughs> of the people he's working with. He, you know, he still fundamentally believes in a, in a sort of liberal or we'd call it progressive way in the U.S. Uh, in this necessity, the necessity of everyone having this equal access to nonprofit media and it's good for democracy and to mitigate fascism. And he stays. He actually behind the scenes was very helpful, and he becomes this like beloved figure that ends up training the first and second generations of American non-commercial media advocates. And so how does he do that? You know, he's, he literally teaches them how to uh, create segues between broadcasts. Okay. Uh, he uh, the conversational tones that you have, you know, in good interviews and all those kind of things. And just the techniques of the BBC become planted within these Midwestern universities who will eventually build public media in the U.S. in the 1960s. And so Seatman is so immensely popular in spite of <laughs> his opinions of the people he's working with that they invite him onto these major research projects. So they're trying to figure out like how to understand if educational media is actually educational, like how do we know when it works? And his work inspires how they begin to form a, a nonprofit network in the U.S., which they call the Bicycle Network uh, before it was federally funded. Uh, bicycles and they bicycle around these recorded um, you know, programs between the Midwest universities. Uh, and uh, so the relationship between that and the possibilities for changing policy. And in 1945, he writes something called the Blue Book for the FCC, and it makes this strong argument that educational media is important for mitigating fascism and that it's a responsibility of media to not just be commercial. You know, and then his most prominent student uh, on that or protege was a guy named Dallas Smythe. Uh, he goes on to essentially do studies 
that prove that educational media in the US does make these sociological contributions. And this leads to the actual policy changes that we see that make possible public broadcasting in the US. So Seidman becomes this pretty crucial figure in the US history. Uh, I have a colleague named Victor Picard at University of Pennsylvania that's written about him. Uh, otherwise, he's gone pretty un- under the radar for a lot of years. Interesting, interesting, because there's that name, the Seatman, which you, I know when he works under Hilda Matheson, who starts in as director of talks at the B- the first director of talks at the BBC in 1927. You know, the most senior female director there is in the early days. She's credited over here for giving us speech radio as we still know it today. Really, the more in- informal and, as you said, the segues and things like that. So it's interesting to see a bit of that free flow of of ideas um, a- across the Atlantic. Speaking of Hilda Matheson, we must mention the new biography, Hilda Matheson, A Life of Secrets and Broadcasts, by Kate Murphy and Michael Carney. Hear Kate soon on this podcast. So once they have the research in place, once they get better at the best practices, once they figure out how to distribute program within uh, you know, their own network without seeking advertising dollars, which would have transformed the approach... Uh, the policies begin to change and they attract money from the Ford Foundation. And the Ford Foundation puts just hundreds of millions, the equivalent of probably billions now with inflation, into the system. And they start educational television, NET, National Educational Television. And a lot of that talent uh, begins to persuade other philanthropic groups like Carnegie and Kellogg, uh, and, and as well as policymakers, that educational media is a viable contribution Uh, not only to democratic discourse um, against what they were worried about, which was communism at the time, um, but also uh, just culture and what they would call cultural uplift. So, yeah, I mean, so between the 50s and 60s, you get these incremental gains for educators where they're just much better at the service. And there's, of course, way just years behind, you know, the BBC still, Uh, but they're making progress uh, along multiple fronts at once. So, by 1967, um, they have the Public Broadcasting Act of 67. So when you look at the American system, almost the entire logic of the system is in you know, motion by about 1937 and 38, but it takes 30 years for them to actually turn it into a service. Wow. Then it tries to be comparable to the BBC. And of course, we import just a huge amount of BBC content to this day. You've enthused me. I'm going to go read more about Charles Seekman uh, right now. We're going to return again to America on this podcast. We we claim to be a British broadcasting history podcast, but I think we need to look westwards once again at some point. One final burst of Martin Cooper on the BBC in film and TV. One other to go way back, De- Death at Broadcasting House, was it 1934 oh. or something like that, which was I think yeah. it was a film and a radio play and a novel. Holt Marvell, who of course uh, was... A pseudonym, really, wasn't yes. it? It's That's right. Who went on to be editor of the Radio Times and also, I think, was he head of light entertainment? Head of light entertainment. Yeah, he went off to Hollywood, wrote a, like, yeah. a nightingale sang in Barclay Square, and then came back and he was the deputy that helped get Dr. Who off the ground. You know, right. So yes, spanning yes. that radio and yeah. TV career. But him, but, him yeah. and Val Gielgud, who was uh, John's brother, they, they wrote this novel, Death at Broadcasting House, timed, I think, to tie in with uh, the opening of Broadcasting House. Um, Val Gielgud, of course, was the head of drama for the BBC, the first person ever to be the head of drama. Um, and I think he was kind of discovering what radio drama was all about because it never done before. So he was making it up. Um, Death at Broadcasting House. I think I enjoy the novel. 
very good, I think, because it, it kind of takes you on a, a technical journey through uh, the corridors and the floors of the BBC. I don't want to give too much away, but the idea of the story is that the killer is caught because they are able to record the sound of the studio where the murder took place and then play it back. That's mm. how they catch the and killer. That's novel, isn't it? That, at the time, it that is, is just coming in. The techno I mean, uh, recording technology was really in its infancy. In fact, he mentions the Blattner phone. It's a great name. You know, it's gone down in history, and everyone's forgotten it. But yeah. that was one of the, the the early recording devices that that they used. Now they made a film of it. There is a little bit of dispute about whether Death at Broadcasting House, the movie made in Britain, was actually filmed in the new Broadcasting House or was actually filmed in Elstree or Egham or, you know, one of the mm. um, uh, movie studios on the outskirts of London. I go with the fact that it was actually a, a, a recreation of Broadcasting House, but still, you know, elegantly done. What gets me, though, and, and this is something that I mentioned in my book, is that here we have the head of BBC drama writing a novel and the centrepiece of the story is a death live on air. It's like snuff radio. Mm. And I'm thinking, what was he thinking? <laughs> Why did? He... But, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a good story and it can yeah. and it can I think it, it kind of shows that that radio was this exciting new medium and that you know we have a death here on our hands and isn't this fantastic sounds a bit morbid doesn't it but isn't this fantastic let's take a step back it's unusual yeah. to essentially sell a building to the masses by saying there's a murder here <laughs> that's <laughs> right it's a really yes. odd way of, of of launching it but there you go. one of the um interesting and slightly sad connections i've made is from that movie in the early 1930s to an episode of Bob the Builder in the 1990s, <laughs> early 2000s. Didn't see that where coming. The, yeah, no, <laughs> neither did I. Um, but I watched, there's three episodes of Bob the Builder, uh, highly recommended if you're age <laughs> seven, uh, where they build a radio station. Yes, we can. Mm. And th there's this character who is a radio producer who has a little goatee beard and glasses, and he looks just like Val Gielgud. And at one point in the Bob the Builder um, sketch and um, he's asked what does a radio producer do to which he answers i haven't got a clue uh, it's an in-joke made by the creators of bob the builder for the yeah. grown-ups who are watching I think. lovely very nice very nice a brief addition to the canon that i helped with last year was we did this show andy and the band for cbbc mm. which is andy day very tall um, yeah yeah, yeah. i know it well I yeah it well. and um and we we did an episode i so i wrote this episode i inherited the idea of someone else's idea but they said oh you like your bbc stuff would you like to do write this episode and in, in which the band get locked in to media city uh to, to well, well just call it bbc hq i think yeah. and and more importantly all the all the presenters have been locked out so the, the doors have jammed, the band are in, they've got to run around and present Blue Peter, Radio 2 Breakfast Show, right. um, I can't remember what else we did now, Crack, Cracker Jack, the new, News Round, the weather. Um, the original draft had about four other, you know, we had Match of the Day. Basically then, of course, it's about what studios can we get access to and who will let yes. us go and have a little play there. So, yeah. um, you know, it ended up just being sort of three or four. But uh, but we had fun filming at Media City, or really? they did. I wasn't in part of that bit, but it was fun setting them tasks to go and present things, you know. Nowadays, this effort to save past radio heritage could also be a community effort to save a broadcast building or a transmitter, or in the case of Japan, uh, radio towers that are in parks. So it, 
We may be very individual uh, in our love of radio, but we might also be involved in different forms of collectives or communities around that love of radio. So in that sharing uh, chapter where I ask, you know, how do you share your love of radio? I'm also thinking about forms of display that you might collect certain types of objects like uh, vintage radio sets or even develop certain spaces like a, a radio museum or an exhibition. You know, the different ways in which people engage in shared listening practices, but perhaps also in putting on events that others could participate in. Well, there you go. Carolyn Birdsell's book is Radiophilia. Martin Cooper's book is Radio's Legacy in Popular Culture. And Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, is by Josh Shepard. Links to all of those in our show notes. Put them on your Christmas wish list now. But if you'd like three more suggestions, stay tuned, because next time we'll be hearing from radio practitioners, people who are broadcasters in Britain today and over the years. Join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century, building towards the end of 2023. We will return in 2024, of course, with our standard episodes telling the tale of 1923. This has been the British Broadcasting Century, presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Don't forget we're on Facebook and Twitter, or X, I believe they call it now, and we're on Patreon. If you'd like to support us there, patreon.com slash paulcarenza. It all goes to help fund this podcast, plus videos, newsletters. Oh, you'd be amazed what you find over on Patreon. Equally, of course, you can just for free share this podcast, like us, and rate and review us. All of that costs you nothing but really, really helps us. So thank you. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time. More authors on Doctor Who, the Sunday programme and music radio in the British Broadcasting Century.